So it is nice to be back. I was gone last week, and I want to thank uh, Brother Mark Ostroff for uh, filling in for me and, uh, and everyone who helped out with that. Last week, I was in Oklahoma City, and I was able to attend a conference where I was able to hear a lot of great preachers, uh, and the focus on the conference was the book of Ephesians. And so I've been thinking about Ephesians a lot, and I heard a lot of messages about Ephesians, and so guess what we're going to preach on this morning? <laughs> We're going to be in the book of Ephesians. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And in Ephesians chapter 2, there is um, a really powerful image that I think helps to further the entire purpose of the book of Ephesians. If I were to try to summarize what is happening in the book of Ephesians and boil it down to basically one idea or one sentence, here's what I think, in essence, the book of Ephesians is. I think the book of Ephesians is Paul, as a Jew and as a representative Jew who has put his faith in Christ, writing a welcome letter to the Gentiles into the family of God, showing them that they have always had a place within this family, they are an essential part of this family, and they have a very high calling in this family. Ephesians is describing how different groups have come together into one glorious and exalted church. It is showing how God is uniting the world that has been fractured by all kinds of division and walls and barriers, knocking down those barriers to unite this, uh, these groups into one family of God. And that's what the mystery of the gospel is that's being revealed throughout the book of Ephesians. And so it's a powerful passage. If you want to talk about Christian unity, if you want to talk about breaking barriers that have divided humanity, Ephesians is a really, really powerful book. In Israel, perhaps the most important building you're going to find, in fact, I would say definitely the most important building that you're going to find in the ancient world is the temple. The temple that was uh, built by Solomon, the temple that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, but then we have several books in the Bible about the rebuilding of that temple. Uh, You have Ezra and Nehemiah, you also have some of the minor prophets like Haggai and Zechariah that focus a lot on the, the concept of rebuilding that temple. There's a promise made in the book of Haggai that the latter glory of that temple will be greater even than the former. Uh, the temple was an essential part of Israelite worship and their, their closeness and, and their uh, connection to God. The presence of God in a unique way dwelt within the temple. And they would gather there to worship. The sacrificial system uh, took place at the temple. They found forgiveness of sins at the temple. The temple was a beautiful picture of God's dwelling among his people. However, the closer you look at the temple, you see some other messages associated with it also. You see some messages associated with the temple like, this is for us only, and all you other folks out there in the world are not welcome. Um, That's not what the grand vision of the temple was always supposed to be. In fact, if you look at the book of uh, Isaiah, chapter uh, 56, you get the picture of those who have been excluded being welcomed in by God. When Jesus cleanses the temple, he says, this is supposed to be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a robber's den. Notice that phrase, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. You know another way you can translate that word nations? Gentiles. Uh, The word Gentiles and nations is the same word in Greek and and in Hebrew. It's the same word also. It just kind of depends on on the context, which translation you put there. But the temple is this beautiful building with the presence of God. And you get these glimmers throughout scripture of it supposed to be something that unites everybody. Yet you get a very clear impression that that's the opposite of what it had become. 
Uh, For example, if you remember when they're rebuilding the temple in the days of Ezra, Gentiles want to come and help in the project. And they are emphatically refused the opportunity to do so. Told, you have no part in this building, you are not welcome. You keep reading, uh, and uh, remember in Acts 21, when Paul was arrested, uh, Paul spends pretty much the rest of the book of Acts on trial and all these different things. The event that got him arrested was he went to the temple to make an offering. And while he was there, there were Jews who were aware of Paul out on his missionary journey spending so much time with Gentiles. And someone begins to think, I think he brought Gentiles to the temple. And they say, absolutely not. He couldn't have done that. Are you serious? And an uproar starts. And they're going to kill Paul. Like, that's the intent, is to kill him. They end up putting a stop to that and just arresting him. But they're going to kill him because he brought a Gentile to the temple. That's a big no-no. There are actually physical walls and barriers at the temple that kept Gentiles separate. There's a court of the Gentiles. And there's a physical barrier that keeps them from drawing any closer. In fact, we've discovered some ancient inscriptions that would have been a part of that temple and on that wall that gave a very clear warning not to go any further if you are a foreigner or a Gentile or a pagan. Uh, I'll, I'll read it to you now. This is on the temple wall, the court of the Gentiles, to keep them from drawing closer to the presence of the God of Israel. And it says, No outsider shall enter the protective enclosure around the sanctuary, and whoever is caught will only have himself to blame for the ensuing death. It was a death sentence. If you got into that sacred space and you were not an Israelite with the privilege of doing so, that's why they were going to kill Paul. They thought he was breaking those rules. That's why Gentiles were uh, refused the opportunity to help build the temple. That's why Jesus, when cleansing the temple, critiques Israel for saying, you have forgotten that this is supposed to be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Well, with that image in mind, we go to the book of Ephesians where... Paul is writing a welcome letter to Gentiles saying, you are not separated any longer. You are not strangers. You are not foreigners. You are not a separate nation. You are fellow heirs with us through Jesus Christ. All of those things that have caused barriers and divisions have been broken down, and we have become one family in the Lord. Some of the language that he uses has that really important, dramatic temple imagery as we go through chapter 2. So let's start in verse 13. After describing the way Jews would have seen them for years and years and years, they were people who were without God, people without hope, they were strangers, they were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Like All of those things, Paul is going to say, all of those ideas that have been associated with you Gentiles are done away with in Jesus. Because, verse 13, because now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. For he himself is our peace. He is our peace. If you want peace in this world, I don't think there's a better source anywhere that you can find than Jesus himself. Jesus becomes the peace between nations. Jesus becomes the peace between peoples who otherwise would never sit with each other at the same table and share a common meal and sing songs with one another of praise. Jesus is the peace that brings that together. And that's the message that Paul is bringing to the ancient world. That's the message of the gospel, that he is uniting into one saved family through Jesus all kinds of different people. And he is the one who brings about that peace among peoples. And so he says he is our peace. How did he do that? Verse 14. Who made both 
into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Remember that wall at the temple we were talking about? I, I think Paul is explicitly drawing upon that imagery. And I, I, I feel pretty confident saying that because by the time you get to the end of this chapter, it, it's clear that he's talking temple language here. And he says that he broke down that wall that caused those sorts of barriers and divisions. He broke down the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity. Well, what, what was creating enmity? Well, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. There were aspects of Torah that were specifically held up by Jews to create a separation between them and Gentiles. One of the big ones that appears throughout the New Testament is circumcision. That was a dividing wall. That was a barrier that kept Jews and Gentiles distinct. And in order for Gentiles to become part of the Christian community, certain uh, Jews were saying, no, you have, to, you have to get across this barrier by being circumcised. Paul is saying, no, you get across the barrier in Jesus. Jesus is what unites you, not circumcision. And it's not Sabbath observance. And it's not your food laws. And it's not all of these different things that have been used to cause division. Jesus is the one who brings about the unity. And so he breaks down that enmity. He breaks down those laws that have separated you. So that, verse 15 continues, he himself might make the two into one new man thus establishing peace. And he might reconcile them in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to those who were far away, Gentiles, and to those who were near, Jews. So the message of peace is preached to all of them so that they could all come together in one family. Verse 18, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So if the Father is in the temple... You both have access to him now in the spirit through Jesus. You don't have one group that can get closer and the other one has to stay a little bit separate or to the outskirts or isn't welcome. You're both welcome through the spirit. So verse 19 through 22. So then, you are no longer strangers or foreigners and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints. And you are of God's household. Uh, By the way, God's household could be seen in one of two ways. One, God's house is the temple. So you're saying you are God's house. Another, God's household is a way of describing God's family. That you are God's family. You have actually become part of God's temple. As you keep reading, that's the image that he picks up on, you becoming part of God's temple. Verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fit, uh, fit together is growing into a holy temple of the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now that is powerful language, especially to a Gentile community who has been told, you cannot help us build the temple, you are not welcome to the temple, you cannot enter the temple, we'll arrest you and kill you if you try to do so. Now Paul is saying, you're not only welcome to the temple, You are the temple. You are actually part of the structure now that God is using to dwell within. The presence of God is found within you. You are not separate. You are not divided. You are not pushed aside or made to be far away. You are as close and near to God as you can possibly be. You don't need a physical structure of a temple anymore because God is dwelling within you. Whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, whether you've been called clean or unclean, 
The walls of distinction and division have been broken down. You are one family in God. That's a powerful image that Paul is drawing upon there. That's a powerful message that he's providing to demonstrate the reality of God's love for all humanity that through Jesus and through the blood of the cross, he is bringing them together so that they can be his. And he can dwell among them and they can dwell with him and God can bring about unity. As I think about this, I think it's a wonderful picture of of unity. And I think it's a wonderful picture of, of the gospel working to create one family of God. But I also can't help but think about the fact that Jesus is breaking down the barriers that are intended to create division. He's breaking them down so that we can have unity. How often do we find ourselves getting a hammer and nails or brick and mortar to build walls back up? How often do we find ourselves looking out and saying, no, actually, I think we'd be better off. It'd be easier to be holy if we had more walls. It'd be easier to keep these people away. I don't know that I necessarily trust these people with their wacky ideas. And all of a sudden, we start building up more and more walls. Perhaps it's out of the good intention of keeping ourselves pure and holy. But all of a sudden, we have built walls that Jesus died to tear down. Uh, I heard a lesson while I was there from uh, Jeremy Beller, and and uh, he is uh, taking over the the Bible department at Oklahoma Christian, and uh, he was making this point, and it's been on my mind and heart since uh, he said it, but there are so many things that are not worth causing a distinction or a schism or division in the body of Christ. If Jesus didn't build the wall, we better not do it. But yet we'll use politics, we'll use COVID, we'll use nationality, we'll use uh, views upon pretty small matters to build up walls to keep the body of Christ separate and distinct. And Paul is emphatically working and spending his life in suffering to do the exact opposite. Jesus went and flipped over tables in the temple so that they would do the exact opposite. Let's get on board with the mission of Christ. Let's keep the walls as rubble and let's unite with one another so that we can demonstrate to the world a powerful vision of the gospel of Christ that is stronger than any wall we could build. If Jesus didn't build the wall, we better not do it. Since Jesus broke down the walls, let's rejoice in that. Sing with one another, worship together in love and in faith and in unity and not let our differences create a greater schism than they need to. They don't need to. What we need is faith working through love. Um, If there's anyone here this morning who, when you look at your life, uh, you are not leading the life that you know Christ has called you to, and you would like the prayers and the help of the church, we would love to help you in that. If there's anyone here who would like to join into that family, naming Jesus as Lord of your life, having your sins washed away in baptism, and leading a new creative life from him, uh, for him from this point forward, please let that be known. You can talk to some of our elders in the library in the back, or you can come and sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.